We are in a short series for Advent looking at the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And as we've seen over the last two weeks or so, the promise of the Messiah, of the king who will make all things new, which includes us, was given in really dark times of, of Israel's history. And that's appropriate. Isaiah ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah, where God's people, though they at times had had the appearance, at least the appearance of orthodox worship in reality, had rejected God and, and things were just getting worse, much, much worse as you go through the book of Isaiah. Well, last week we looked at chapter 7 and the promise of a coming child who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what makes this promise so amazing, at, at least to me, uh, if, if not really even scandalous, was that it was given to an incredibly wicked king. I mean, unbelievably wicked king by the name of Ahaz. And I'm not going to rehash the details about him, but it's enough to say that political power doesn't get much worse than Ahaz. Well, surrounding that promise of life that was given to Ahaz was also the promise of judgment against Judah's unfaithfulness. And though that may seem a little off-putting to us, the point is this. God would remain faithful to his people and keep the promise he had made to Eve thousands and thousands of years previous to this to redeem the world through one of her offspring. And he would do it even as Israel continued to reject him. So as, as we've already said in this service, the glue that holds our relationship together with God, and this was true with Israel in, in her deepest, most sinful moments, and it's true with us. It's not our faithfulness. It's not our faithfulness, it's his. He always acts for our good, despite our sin and even our rejection of him. Well, today we come to what is probably one of the most well-known passages concerning the coming of the Messiah. It's Isaiah chapter 9. It's a favorite for this time of year. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Let me read for us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping uh, warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we 
seek to meditate on it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. It is a word of a promise of justice, as we read early in that, those first few verses, how there will be justice against Israel's enemies, even as you promised to bring the nations, the sea, the, the Galilee of the nations into your kingdom. But it is also a promise of your son. So Lord, we pray at this time that we would learn more about him, that we would grow in our knowledge of just how much you love us through him and how much you paid for us to know you and to have a communion with you. We pray all of this in his name through the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, there's a lot to this passage. There's no way I'm going to hit it all. I'm not going to try. But there are at least two things I want to discuss this morning. I think that will help us get a better understanding of the Messiah as, as Isaiah speaks about him. So the first thing I want to do, I want to talk about all those various names of the Messiah in this passage and what they mean. And then second, I want to talk about the politics of this passage because there is a politics to it and it's very different. It is very different from how sinful humans typically think about and pursue power. So let's begin, however, by reviewing just a few things from chapter seven from last week that are critical for understanding what, what we're gonna be doing today. So if you think back to last week, the promise of the Messiah in chapter seven is that a son will be born who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So the idea here is that somehow God will dwell with his people through this child. And as we've mentioned before, the promise of an offspring is a familiar pattern with God. We just need to think of the promise made to Eve and to Abraham and to Hannah. In fact, we looked at her song when she received that promise of a son. You can think of the, the promise made to Samson's parents and to Elizabeth with her son, John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin. But it's you know not merely the promise of a child, though that's important. It's the promise that God will act on our behalf, that he will heal us, and he's going to do it through a human, through one of us. As, as Paul thinks on this, uh, if a human an image bearer brought sin and death into the world, that's Adam, another human will overcome death itself and restore us to God. Now, except in the case of Eve, every birth I mentioned just 10 seconds ago was, was miraculous because children were born from women who were either barren or elderly or both. But in Isaiah 7, the, the sign is of a virgin that will conceive and have a son, which goes really well beyond the previous patterns of miraculous births. So it's, it's obviously far more daunting in a certain sense for a virgin to have a child than a barren or elderly woman. I mean, how do you get around the issue of a father? And, and with this promise, God was signaling that he was doing something new. He was doing something new on a much bigger magnitude than what he had previously done. So Isaiah 7 doesn't undermine what has come before. You just think Isaac, Samuel, and so forth. They're all very important figures that are building, in fact, towards Emmanuel. It's rather with chapter seven that God established the, the pattern of miraculous births for recognizing the ultimate, for recognizing the Messiah when he shows up. Why? Because as Abraham learned, you can't take these things into your own hands. You can't make God 
fulfill his promise. He does it in his own timing because salvation comes from him alone. So related to this, starting with Genesis 3, the hope of the Old Testament is that God would not just overcome sin and death, as important as that clearly is, The point of overcoming sin and death is so that God would restore what was lost in Eden. That is, he would permanently dwell with his people again. What makes Eden paradise? What makes the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22 so spectacular is God's presence. You see, salvation in the Bible is not so much about where you go as it is who you get. So it's not utopia. It's not hippy-dippy land. It's not your imagined best day with your best dog, with your best meal and your favorite memories and your alma mater's fight song on constant repeat. No, that's so cheap. I hate to say that, but it's so cheap. No, it's unfettered, unhindered life with God. Everything about the Old Testament is pushing towards the hope that God will dwell permanently with his people. So the promise in Isaiah 7 is a big step towards this. A son is coming who will somehow bring about in a way no one could have imagined or conjured up, at least to that point, of God dwelling with his people. Well, that takes us to verse 6 of our chapter today, chapter 9. So Isaiah says this child will have even more names than Emmanuel. And Emmanuel's a pretty great name. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So let me just break each one of those down one by one. I think Wonderful and Counselor are actually two distinct names. It's sometimes hard to tell that. Uh, in your translation because interpreters or translators, they make choices too, and I think there should be a comma there between wonderful and counselor because I think they're referring to two different names. That is, his name is wonderful, and his name is also counselor. And I think this because of places like Judges 13, 18, where Manoah, the father of Samson, he asked the angel of the Lord after he's been given news of this miraculous birth of his son, He asked the angel of the Lord what his name is. And the angel says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And what the angel of the Lord means is that his name is indicative of his being that is beyond comprehension. It is too magnificent for Manoah, Manoah, excuse me, or any human to understand. It's it's very much like how Yahweh, the name God reveals, reveals to Moses at the burning bush, is indicative of who God is and what he does. This God, Yahweh, is the one who saves Israel. He is the one who is for Israel. Well, the angel of the Lord had the special role of representing God with God often speaking and working through that angel as if the angel were God himself. And so Isaiah is making the same connection with this son, Emmanuel. This child's name, his very being, will be wonderful. Too wonderful, in fact, to behold for our own imaginations. Too magnificent for any human to take in. So it's it's worth asking the question, especially if you are a, a Jew living in this time, how can a human be wonderful as even the angel of the Lord is wonderful or or how Yahweh is wonderful? Well, he will also be a counselor. He will be as Isaiah eleven two describes him. 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this, this son will be filled with the Holy Spirit and will be full of wisdom and knowledge and fear of the Lord. So to be a counselor, as, as they're using it here, is not merely to be a guy with good advice. It's indicative, actually, of kingliness, of righteous rule. So this human will be everything Adam was not, even as he will be a far superior Solomon. He will be the king the world needs, but has never had. He will be what humanity was actually created to do and be and has utterly failed to do. He is also called Mighty God, that is El Gabor. And this name, like Emmanuel and Wonderful, I don't know how you get around it, it signals divinity. So that is, there, there is a Godness to this human child. So everywhere, for example, in Isaiah, the word El, we would spell that E-L, uh, is used as in Elohim or El Gibor or El Shaddai. It's always applied to Yahweh, the Savior of Israel. So this son will somehow be mighty God come in the flesh. This child is also, the list just keeps on coming, right? This child is also described as father. Well, two things on this. First, this is sometimes hard for us who you know, live in light of the New Testament. Uh, this is not a confusion between the father and the son, as if God shows up in different modes sometimes, like how water can sometimes be a liquid or sometimes be a solid or sometimes a vapor. To think of God in those terms is actually heresy. It's a heresy. God is one God and three distinct persons, not one God who shows up in three different ways or modes. No, instead, this is a description of this child's character and his demeanor. It's like how Franz Delich uh, describes him as the tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provider for his people. That's a good king. That's a good king. So think of it like this. The maker of heaven and earth, the eternal one who has always been, the alpha and the omega, will come to dwell with his people through this child, and he will do so with the tenderness and strength of a good, patient, and faithful father. So it's why Jesus says about himself in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is precisely the character that, that Isaiah is describing here. Well, this child is also the prince of peace. Now, that doesn't mean he, he is peaceful. Sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. No, rather it means he is going to bring real and lasting peace on the earth. So when Isaiah says peace, he actually means the, the Hebrew concept of the word shalom. That is real, tangible peace between warring people. This is exactly what Solomon was supposed to do. That's why his name is actually Shalom. We pronounce it Solomon because, you know, we're, we're Americans, I guess. But his name means this, this peace. And what's the, the idea here is the cessation of hatred, anger, anxiety, violence, manipulation, or using other people as tools or opportunities to benefit ourselves. 
So this shalom is characterized by people who are indwelled by the Spirit and look like, you ready for this? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope that sounds familiar to you. It's the kind of peace that, that we never see happen, except really for, for fleeting moments here and there. And it's, this peace is more than give peace a chance, John Lennon. It's, it's more than trade talks. It's more than a summit. It's more than a ceasefire. It's more than begrudgingly tolerating other people's existence. It's bringing, in fact, hostile people together as one people. In fact, you, I don't really mention this, but this is the first part of Isaiah 9 where the nations, and this is what we talked about in Isaiah 2, where the nations stream to this temple who is Christ himself. That's the idea. They've come. Babel has been reversed. They are finding unity in God. So as Isaiah says, and this is the perfect illustration, people will turn their swords into plowshares. That is, they will turn from being against each other, from preparing to kill each other, to being for each other's good. Now, what makes this this promised son so controversial is that clearly he's a human, but at the same time, he's described as God. He's not just attached to God like a prophet might be or or like the angel of the Lord might be. No, this, this son, this human person is somehow God himself. And there's really no way around Isaiah's words unless you just want to translate them or or interpret them in radically different ways than their clear and obvious meaning. And of course, some scholars have done that. And the reason they do that is not just because they want to deny Jesus and Christianity, though that's clearly there, but it's because the whole notion of God becoming human is crazy. Actually, no, it's, it's more scandalous. It's more scandalous. I mean, just think of what what David ponders in Psalm 8, where he says, the one who made the heavens, the moon and the stars, who spoke them into existence, he cares so much for humans that not only does his his eyes fix upon us and he cares about our existence, all all those, taking care of us, all that stuff. With Isaiah, he goes a step farther and humbled himself to become as we are, for us and our salvation. So God so loves this world. He loves the stars and the moon and even the cattle, as Jonah reminds us. He so loves humanity that he became one of us in order to redeem us and make us whole again. And what makes this so scandalous is that God did this not for good people, not for good people, but for wicked ones. He does this for wicked people. God loved us in a way that absolutely stripped him of everything. That's what what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says that Jesus Christ, even though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, as in he did not need to pursue his power, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our God. That is his character. He is gentle and lowly, and he offers rest to his frustrated, anxiety-filled, depressed, 
sinful creatures. This child gives himself for the life of the world. It's awe-inspiring. When you really start to think on it, and I think it is hard to think on this, but when you really start to meditate on it, it's in its magnitude, it's, it's crazy. I mean, who loves like this? Only our God does. Well, this takes me to the second point. This child has everything to do with politics. Now, you might be thinking, listen, man, you were, going, you were doing well. Right? You, you were telling us how good our God is, how much he loves us, and now you're going to go and ruin the sermon by talking about politics. What are you thinking? Well, you would absolutely have a point if it was politics as usual, but it's not. See, one of the problems Christians in America have is that when we hear the term politics, we instantly assume a Republican-Democrat dichotomy or even a conservative-liberal or capitalist-socialist-libertarian-whatever those kinds of ideologies. And of course, you know, I get that. I totally get that. I'm right there with you. Politics in America is basically ideology run amok. But the Bible is not. It's, it, it thinks much, much bigger and better than what's on offer with American ideology. So, you know, one of the most important ways of thinking about politics in the Christian tradition, and this goes back thousands of years, is how Thomas Aquinas, riffing off of Aristotle, of all people, thought about it. Among other things, you know, politics, this is a very simple way of thinking about it. Don't worry, this is not going to turn into a lecture. One of the best ways of thinking about politics is about the use of power. And that power affects every single relationship we have. And everyone, you see, think about this now, everyone has some measure of power, some more, some less. And the power that power that we have in a way that the animals do not. That power comes from God himself and is bound up with being an image bearer. Paul teaches that. And the power that God gives to humanity is given so that we would wield it for the common good. So again, animals don't have this. Animals do what animals do. Humans are different. Only humans are called to steward and have dominion over creation. And this is basically what is at the heart of love your neighbor. How will you use the power that is given to you for the good of other people? The problem is that since the fall, sinful humanity has used power, well, sinfully, and pursued tyranny instead of the common good. So again, Thomas defines tyranny as using our power for selfish and personal gain alone. So we, of course, can think of big, bad tyrants, right, and how they rule for personal gain. But tyranny is a problem that runs through every human heart. So we we are all tempted to use our power to dominate, manipulate, abuse, or simply pursue our selfish interests and in turn to view other humans as tools or obstacles to our selfish desires. So tyranny can reach as high as the White House or the owner or CEO of a huge corporation or as low as a family living in abject poverty in Mexico City. Now, to show you how this works, just consider the parents, for example, are given power and authority over their children. How will they use it? How will they use it? Because they have it, how will they use it? Will they pursue what is good and virtuous for their children, sacrificing for them? 
disciplining them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or will they use their power to abuse them or frustrate them or manipulate them or vicariously live through them or, or whatever? And an example how, how tyranny works and how it can spread is not just individual, but it is it can be collective, not just like one tyrant at the top of the heap, but it can be an endemic to an, an entire culture is abortion. Think of it this way. Pregnant women have the power of life and death over defenseless and totally dependent humans growing in them. Will they use their power for the good of the baby or will they see the baby as an obstacle, as a hindrance to the mother's pursuit of self? That's how tyranny works. See, power in itself is not evil. It's not. It's in fact God-ordained. It's bound up with being human. So when you read Genesis 1 through 3 or Ephesians 5 and 6, there are clear relationships of power ordained by God. The problem is that our culture thinks of power merely in terms of tyranny. And we have virtually lost the notion of the common good even as we all recognize and hate tyranny. This is why people are desperate for their their candidate to win because they see power this way and they think in order for us to have the good life, we must wrestle power and control. So even when politicians claim to be for the common good and really mean it, they are often really just about what is good for their party or special interests. It's why both Democrats and Republicans think that opposing presidents the one that got elected that they didn't vote for are tyrants and talk about them in just those terms. So when Trump was in office, he was a tyrant. Now that Biden is in office, guess what? He's a tyrant too. We are so affected by this that for some Christians, when Paul in Ephesians 5 says husbands are the head of their wives, it is interpreted as wrongheaded or archaic. Never you mind how he describes the husband's calling as one of self-sacrifice and living for her good. I mean, why on earth? This is the way the thinking goes. Why on earth would a woman, let alone anyone else, submit to some authority or power other than her own authority or power? And how can Paul possibly be good for teaching that? Now, to be certain, men have been tyrannical in their use of power. In their sin, they have used their strength to subjugate women or abuse their children or manipulate or intimidate their neighbors or dominate or destroy their enemies. The problem is that when you can only see power as tyranny, when that's the only definition at work in your heart, the way you approach other people, the way you approach business, the way you approach politics or sports or whatever, there's a zero-sum game of gaining power in order to benefit yourself or your tribe. And there's no endpoint to, to that pursuit because there's never enough. There's never enough. But when you read Ephesians 5, it is clear that Paul is thinking through power dynamics as God intended them. And we see them personified in Christ. That's why Christ is at the center of that. And it's not tyranny at all. It's love. It's the pursuit of the good of others. It's why the Sermon on the Mount is an indictment on tyranny in all its forms, but also a radically God-centered way of using our God-given power for the good of others as he intended it. So what does it say when, for example, someone uses their power to love 
and pray for those who persecute them or refuses to seek vengeance or to to lust or or instrumentalize some other person for our, our, our own pleasure. What does it say about the person when they refuse to do that? To love God and neighbor is to walk, you see, in the way of the Messiah of Isaiah 9. It's to love as God loves. It's to pursue politics and power as God pursues it. So we read in 9-7 that this same Emmanuel will have the government upon his shoulder and that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the expectation is that this is not merely a spiritual kingdom. Some Christians read it that way. And guess what? That's wrong. It's wrong. The biblical expectation is that the Messiah, the heir of David's throne, will rule visibly, intangibly over this earth. He will not be a tyrant. As even the best human rulers tend to devolve into tyrants. No, he will rule for the common good. So even two of the best kings Israel ever had, David and Solomon, despite their respective love for God, and the deep wisdom they had, they became tyrants too, ruling for the sake of personal gain. No, this king, he will be unlike anything the world has ever known. And by the way, you can feel what I'm talking about here, this tyrannical nature of the world every day. You feel it in the choices that are dictated and marketed to you as if you had freedom in them. You feel it with the corruption in Washington. You feel it in your marriages when your spouse doesn't do as you want. Or like me, when you're watching a high school sporting event and the officiating does not measure up to your personal standard and you decide to lose your mind. So for example, this this past Wednesday at Walmart, this past Wednesday at Walmart is as the group shopping for the, for the foster kids was on the verge of checking out. A verbal fight broke out between uh, two teenage girls and it quickly extended to their, to their mothers. And it, w- it was all females. And it was looking like it was going to turn violent. And, and I, was, I was explaining this to the youth this morning. You know the difference between the, the hold me back fight? Now, hold me back now, hold me back, versus the, the way I think of it, they start to shimmer because they're starting to tense. And you can see their their muscles preparing because they want to throw. That's where it was headed. That's where it was headed. And when you see that, you can start to understand tyranny is not just wicked kings. It's the use of whatever power you have in order to benefit yourself and the anger and violence that often erupts from us is because our selfishness has been stifled by some obstacle in our way, and it's almost always a person. Tyranny is the default. It's the sinful human condition. 
And Israel was promised a king in the midst of tyranny who would rule not just over Israel, but over the whole world, not as a tyrant, but as the true human, mighty God, the Prince of Shalom, a counselor who is wonderful in the depth of his being, who rules in righteousness and truth in the fear of the Lord for the common good out of his love for the world. That's the Messiah. That's him. The central claim of Christianity is that the person that we're talking about, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, is found in Jesus Christ. It's why every gospel account is framed as the announcement of the long-awaited king and why the central theme of Jesus' preaching and teaching was the kingdom of God and that it has shown up. So when you look at Jesus' life, Everything he does fits with Isaiah 9. He does not seek to do anything for his own selfish gain, but for the good of his people and the life of the world. And if you listen to his teaching and his preaching, and again, just think of the Sermon on the Mount and how Paul applies the Sermon on the Mount to fundamental relationships in Ephesians 5, it is a way of living that assumes that everything promised in Isaiah has come true in Jesus and is in the process of coming true. So it's growing. And we participate in it right now. So when you hear parables like the Good Samaritan or Jesus' command to love our enemies, those are actually political teachings because they are calling us away from the way of tyranny to the way of love. It's the ethics of the people of God who live with one foot in the present evil age and one foot in the reality of the kingdom of God that is already here but not yet fully here. Let me put it like this. One of my my best friends, Nick Gray, and some of you remember him. He and his wife have played music here uh, before on Sunday mornings. It's been a while, but some of you remember that. Well, he used to teach Bible at a Christian high school in St. Louis, and one of the questions he used to ask on his ninth grade fall semester exam goes something like this. Write the message of the Bible in one sentence and explain why you wrote what you did. All right, so that's, that's the exam question. Most of you are not in ninth grade. All right? Explain or write the message of the Bible in one sentence. What would you write? Well, here's some of the answers he shared with me. Every story whispers Jesus' name. He's the point of the story. It's pretty good. Here's another one. God is the one true storyteller. So that's telling you everything about history, right? That's that's pretty good too. But here's the one, right? The coming and return of Jesus, God of Shalom. Ninth grader, ninth grader, perfect. That's perfect. I mean, all those answers are really great, and I, I I'll chalk that up to being Nick being a great teacher, of course. But that last last answer is the best one because it tells you the whole trajectory of history of what God is bringing to the world. So when you hear that term gospel, don't you dare narrow it. Don't narrow it. You need to think about how incredibly scandalous the gift of the Messiah is and just how much God loves his people in this world. See, he loves you, you personally, Not altruistically, he delights 
in you. This God delights in you. But you also need to see that he can go from the microscopic to the cosmic, all in the same breath. And you need to see just how big and political the gospel is, how the God we worship has promised to bring an end to tyranny, and everybody wants it. If John Lennon wants it, everybody wants it. And you know what? The cross typifies that. Just think, the one through whom and for whom the world was made gave up his power in order to die to self so that the world could be freed from sin and death. And through his love, his life, his death, his resurrection, we already participate in that shalom now and have in turn been freed to be agents of his love in every place we're called to be. You see, Jesus thinks you absolutely matter. The world says otherwise. Jesus says you absolutely matter. And he's no tyrant. You were not his tool. You were not his slave. No, he so loved you that he gave his life for you. And in turn, he's reconciled you to God the Father. You can pray to him. And one day you will be with him face to face. And he has called you. This is the crazy part. You ready? He has called you to share in his power. He has called you to share in his power, to be his agents of peace and reconciliation wherever he has put you. There's no greater call. I don't care where you're put. There is no greater calling on your life than to be his agent where he has placed you. There's no greater privilege. And he has done this all out of his love for you. Well, let me pray for us. And Heavenly Father, I, I'm kind of frustrated. I'm at a loss to talk about how big this is, how great you are, how incredible this is, how much you love us. So, Lord, I pray I would be out of the way. I pray your spirit would be at work amongst us so that we would see, we would experience just how much you love us, just how much our lives matter, just how much the places you have put us to be matter, and how much the world lies to us. Lord, may we believe the truth. May we want to walk in your ways because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.